The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. It's likely that in your Christian life you've bumped up against Hebrews 6 and it's caused you a little consternation. That wouldn't surprise me if I asked you that. It's become famous because it's one of the hardest words in the entire Bible, in my judgment, and in the judgment of others. It's a word that has caused a lot of confusion among Christians, sadly, not because it's not clear, but because it's been misinterpreted and misapplied to believers and caused lots of trouble and consternation, I think, for many Christians, unfortunately. So we got to get it right, and that's been my aim ever since we started the book of Hebrews, is to make sure that we rightly understand the way these warnings functions in the book of Hebrews. Warning, uh, Hebrews chapter 6 is a warning, and it's one of the six warnings in the book of Hebrews. And if we misinterpret and misapply this passage, we will deeply wound our spiritual lives, and we will keep you from, ironically, the very progress that these warnings were intended to produce in our lives. And if we get these warnings wrong, if these warnings, particularly Hebrews chapter 6, if we get it wrong, we might, may even sideline you for some time in the Christian life. That was my experience. I was sidelined significantly, largely because there are other factors, but largely because of a misinterpretation of this passage that I absorbed and took in and and believed, and it caused me real spiritual trouble. So in order to rightly interpret this passage, we need to understand again and be reminded again who the author is talking to. Who is the author talking to with this warning and every other warning in the book of Hebrews? There are several of them. There's six on my count. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, 3, 12 through 4, verse 1, 6, 1 through 8, the one we're on today, 10, 26 through 31, 12, 12 through 17, and then 12, 25 through 29. Six sharp warnings aimed at whom? Who are they aimed at? Who are they directed at? Who's the audience? Well, let's just be clear. The audience are Christians. That's who he is writing to. He's writing to believers. And that's an important reality that we will see here as we go on. Historically, Bible teachers have attempted to interpret Hebrews chapter 6 in one of four ways. The first way is that they take this passage to mean That because it's directed at believers, but because the warning itself, as we heard, I had Austin read the passage to to begin in his Bible reading, that was helpful, because you already heard the warning, and this first set of interpreters will interpret it as saying, this is aimed at believers, so they got that right, but because the warning is so severe, it must mean that a believer can lose their salvation, the one who has tasted of the heavenly gift and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That must be referring to a believer losing their salvation. So that's one way that this passage has been interpreted. Another way that's been interpreted is to say, yes, it's being directed at believers, but we know that believers can't lose their salvation, so we disagree with that first interpretation. We know that Believers can't lose their salvation, therefore this warning must not be referring to eternal judgment and going to hell. It must be referring to losing your heavenly rewards. And that's how they interpret it and solve the problems. A third set of interpreters says, yes, 
It is referring to believers. We know that believers can't lose their salvation. Therefore, and not only that, but this warning is serious. So we disagree with the first two interpretations in, the, in as much as we believe it's referred to believers who can't lose their salvation. But we disagree with the second one because we believe this, the passage is indicating this is a very serious warning. It's not just a warning about temporal fruitfulness or losing your heavenly reward. Therefore, this warning must be hypothetical. That's the third interpretation. And then there's a fourth interpretation. They agree that this is directed, uh, or this is uh, that a believer can't lose their salvation. They agree that this passage is about falling away and going to hell. But because that can't happen to a true believer, because salvation is secure, therefore, this can't be referenced referencing or directed to believers. This can't be addressed to believers. Well, who is it addressed to? It's addressed to the almost Christian. It's addressed to the pseudo-Christian who needs to come off the fence and get serious about Jesus and come all the way to the faith. And that's how they would interpret it. The almost Christian needs to make up their mind and stop hesitating and come all the way to the Lord. Well, there are elements in each of these interpretations that I agree with. But... Each of them messes a vital element of the passage and therefore is in danger of causing real havoc in the life of the believer. So although there are pieces of each interpretation that I agree with, I I don't believe any of these interpretations gets it completely right. And therefore, if you absorb any one of these interpretations, it's going to cause grief and trouble in your spiritual life. The first interpretation is right about the Warning being directed to believers, but it is dead wrong teaching that a believer can lose their salvation. The author of Hebrews doesn't believe that. In fact, as we get into verse 9, what I call the breath of relief verse, he'll say that we feel, th- uh, we, though we speak in this way, it's a hard way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He will even say in verse uh, 10, Chapter 10, verse 39, he will say, grouping himself together with the congregation, he will say, we are not those who shrink away and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. In 9.12, he'll say that Christ has secured for believers an eternal redemption, an eternal salvation. And because we're part of the new covenant, we are recipients of a forgiveness that cannot be taken away, a permanent forgiveness. Therefore, in the rest of chapter 10, we are to draw near to God in the full assurance of faith. So that first interpretation may be right about the audience, but it is dead wrong about the security of the believer. Salvation is permanent. Not only does the author of Hebrews testify to that, but so does the rest of the New Testament. So we we must reject that interpretation. The second interpretation is right about the audience being believers. But it is wrong about the nature of the warning, isn't it? You have to do some serious twisting here to come out to say, oh, this is just referring to the loss of heavenly rewards. No, it's much stronger than that. It's saying that if you fall away from Christ after meeting this first condition, you can't come back to Christ, you can't repent, you're going to be judged. So the second interpretation you have to reject because it gets the nature of the warning wrong. The third uh, interpretation gets the audience right, it's believers, gets the seriousness of the warning right. It's not referring to just the loss of heavenly rewards or the loss of temporal fruitfulness. It's talking about eternal judgment. But we know that salvation is secure, therefore this warning must be hypothetical. 
And we have to reject that one because there's nothing indicating in the text that this is a hypothetical warning. It's a conditional statement. You meet the condition, the consequences follow every time. There's no indication here that this is a hypothetical warning. And we just know by the nature of warnings, a hypothetical warning is no warning at all. If it's hypothetical, then what's, it's not a warning, right? So it's almost kind of self-contradictory. Fourth, uh, the fourth group is, is right about the security of the believer's salvation. They're right about the seriousness of the warning, but they're wrong about the audience. From beginning of the book of Hebrews to the end, we know that the author is talking to believers. And, and one of the main reasons we know that is because he groups himself together when he's talking about the promises and uh, of the promises of salvation and the permanence of salvation. He groups himself together using we and our language. And then he groups himself together with the whole congregation when he talks about these warnings using we and our language. He groups himself together with this congregation. He is preaching to or he's writing to. So he is referring to, he's speaking to believers with this and the other warnings in Hebrews. This is directed at believers. This warning is directed at Christians. See, in each group, there's a, a conviction about the nature of salvation, kind of pushing its way through the interpretation, driving the interpretation, you might say. Can salvation be lost or is it permanent? And depending on your conviction, that will drive you towards a particular conclusion about this passage and therefore coming to conclusions that Hebrews 6 does not allow. Another important element in each of these four interpretations that is missing is that they do not consider adequately how these mornings are meant to function in the life of the believer. I think that's a big piece that they are missing. We have to answer the question, what are these warnings intended to accomplish or how are they meant to function in the life of the believer? We have to answer that question in a way that accords with the text. And while I agree with elements in each of these interpretations, like I've mentioned, I believe we must reject all of them because to embrace any of them will lead to spiritual confusion and possible spiritual injury. So, let me just be straightforward. I believe all of those interpretations are inadequate and must be rejected. They do not capture what the author of Hebrews is teaching in this passage and therefore will not accomplish what it's, these warnings are intended to accomplish. There is a fifth group of interpreters, however. They take these warnings as being directed at believers. They agree that the warnings are directed at believers. They agree that salvation cannot be lost. And they believe that these warnings are talking about falling away from Christ and going to hell. They believe all three things. All three things are taught in this passage. All three things are taught in the Bible. And this fifth group of interpreters takes, this, takes all of these three things together. But then, if that's the case, how do you make sense of these three truths? Right? I mean, that should start to be... Start to, in your mind start to be like, wait a second, how, how do all these things fit together? If the warnings are directed at believers, and if the warnings are talking about falling away from Christ and going to hell, and believers can't be lost, how do you put all of those truths together in a coherent synthesis? Right? That's the question we should be asking ourselves. We do so, we, we bring these together in a coherent synthesis by asking how these warnings are meant to function in the life of the believer. And that's what we'll seek to answer today as we make our way through the text. How is this warning meant to function 
In God's design, in the author's design, how is it meant to function in the life of the believer? So here's our next point, if you're following me on the outline. The need to make spiritual progress. As we saw last week, the author had to interrupt his discussion of Jesus' high priesthood because he recognized there is something wrong in the congregation. There is a spiritual deficiency, a spiritual regression that disabled them from making progress in their understanding of this deeper truth about Jesus, namely his Melchizedekian high priesthood. You might be like, Melchizedek, what? Right? And that was kind of what they were thinking too. Right? It, it, only it was, it was worse. They, they were actually starting to regress backwards. And the author is going on about Jesus' high priesthood. He wants to talk about Melchizedek, and it's going to be really awesome when we do, and later in chapter 7, I'm looking forward to that. And he was wanting to do that too, but he had to stop. And he said, I, I want to say more, but you have become dull of hearing. You have actually started to regress in the faith. You can't handle these deeper truths. You've become dull. You've become unsure about the basics. You can't even teach the basics anymore. Something is, has happened here. You've become confused. You've been unable to, you're starting to become unable to discern between the new covenant and the old covenant. Which one is better and what, what's happening here? We, we, you need a warning. You need a rebuke because this is not a good situation. The answer to their spiritual regression was, as we mentioned last week, to make progress. Right? It sounds so obvious, but that's what the answer was. Look here in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and the eternal judgment. They needed to move on past these basic spiritual truths. The answer to moving on beyond these basic spiritual truths was to begin to not only regrasp them, but now to grow in their maturity so that they might be able to grasp these deeper truths, namely truths about Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. But he, they needed a refresher. Here's the refresher. You need to repent from your sins. You need to turn away from the old covenant. Any kind of attachment to the old covenant is just dead works. That old covenant is obsolete. Christ has come. You need to repent and trust in Christ. The washings and instructions in the old covenant rituals, you just, those, are, those are no longer useful. They're no longer needed. God does not require them now that Christ has come. Christ is the reality. Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the instruction about the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. God will come and judge the earth. He will judge all people. These are the basic truths that they should have known. They did know, but now they had regressed to the point where they're not able to grasp them clearly. They're not able to teach them to one another. And so they're having real spiritual trouble recognizing the sharp difference between old and new covenant. And so they needed a rebuke and they needed to make progress. They needed to make progress, absolutely. It wasn't a matter of you can just kind of hang out in your uh, area of spiritual regression. They needed to make progress. But notice verse 3. It's a remarkable verse. And this we will do. So there's confidence here, isn't there? We will do this. Okay, We will make progress if God permits. Right? He recognizes that they can't remain in their spirit state of spiritual lethargy, right? But he also recognizes that 
their maturity is ultimately a gift from God that he must grant. And so what I tried to do last week and what this passage is doing and what this verse is doing is it's pushing us back to a previous passage about Jesus' high priesthood and now how he's opened up the door to the throne of grace. This passage is pushing us back to the throne of grace because if we're going to make progress, it's going to come by the grace of God. It's going to come by us going to the Lord and seeking his face and asking for his help, recognizing our dullness and asking him to help us. The first move that we need to make when we are sensing spiritual dullness is to the throne of grace. This we will do if God permits. So go to the throne of grace. Go to the one who can grant you the gift of spiritual maturity and who can push you beyond this spiritual regression. Go to your merciful merciful Heavenly Father and then take some serious action for the sake of your soul. This we will do if God permits. Well, why is spiritual regression so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? The author tells us in verses 4 through 8. So I, and I told you to buckle up last week, so let's put the seatbelt back on. Here we go. We're going to read this set of verses here. Why is spiritual regression so dangerous? This is why. He grounds it. He tells you why. You, you have to grow. Here's why. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain and often falls in and produces a crop useful for those whose sake is cultivated, It receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is near being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Why is spiritual regression so serious? Because left unchecked, it will lead to apostasy. Now, I've used that that word a few times in this series on Hebrews. What is apostasy? Let's define it very clearly. Apostasy is a determined Final, departing from Christ and rejecting the gospel. Apostasy is a determined, final, departing from Christ in a rejection of the gospel. Spiritual regression leads to apostasy because it makes you less and less able to discern the value of Christ and the goodness of the gospel against its competitors. Christ becomes less precious to you. So you lose interest in deeper spiritual truths. And you get to a point where you're eventually able to, believe it or not, able to turn your back completely on Jesus because you no longer see him as true and as beautiful and as worthy of all of your love and trust. That's why spiritual regression is so dangerous because it leads to apostasy. It makes apostasy even possible. When that happens, when that happens and you turn away from Christ after enjoying all the spiritual experiences that he has described here, tasting of the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if if you fall away into apostasy and reject Christ after all of that, it is impossible to come back. It's impossible. 
The word he uses for impossible here is the same word he uses for impossible here in verse 18, later on in chapter 6, verse 18, when it's talking about it being impossible for God to lie. So just as impossible is it for God to lie, so it is for the person who has experienced all of these things to come back to Christ once they've fallen away. It's impossible. It cannot happen. Now, one of the reasons why this passage has confused many a Christian is because they read those descriptions of these spiritual blessings and they're like, that's what a Christian experiences, isn't it? Tasting of the good word of God, the heavenly gifts, sharing in the Holy Spirit, the powers of the age to come, that's what Christians experience. And I would say, yeah, that's what they experience. That is what Christians experience. How can it be then that a person can get to a point after experiencing these things to turn their back on Christ? See, that's the tension, isn't it? We've got to live with some tension here to get this right. How do these other interpreters relieve that tension? Well, remember the first set of interpreters, they relieve that tension by saying that a true believer can, or a, yeah, a true believer can lose their salvation. A Christian can lose it. That's how, you, that's how you deal with the tension. A believer can just lose their salvation. Well, that's unhelpful in contrary to what the author here teaches and what the New Testament teaches. And it, it, it's not at all what the author intends, as we'll see, actually. But that interpretation is unhelpful because it totally undermines any grounds for your assurance. Uh, the second group of interpreters relieve the tension by saying the warning is only referring to a loss of heavenly rewards. But this is an interpretation that badly twists that warning. I mean, we just read it. it. There's no way you can get lots of heavenly rewards out of that passage. He's talking clearly about judgment and the impossibility of coming back to Christ after you've fallen away. If you relieve the tension by saying the warnings are hypothetical, you just make the warning itself meaningless and worthless. So that doesn't help any. And then the fourth set of interpreters, if you relieve the tension by saying the warning is directed at somebody else, like the almost Christian, that who needs to stop being indecisive and just come to Christ, you actually, here's what's, here's what's so ironic about that, you actually rob the Christian who is struggling with their assurance, you rob them of any grounds for assurance. And let me explain this a little more because this one was big for me 20 years ago. Follow me here. The warning in Hebrews 6 doesn't suggest that a person that has tasted of the heavenly gift and tasted of these blessings that has fallen away can come back to Christ or that they need to make up their mind and stop being on the fence. Actually, it says the exact opposite, doesn't it? It says that once that that's happened, you can't come back to Christ. So the Christian struggling with assurance will find no help in this interpretation precisely because they fear that they might be the person being described here in this passage. And if they are the person described in that passage, they can't come back to Christ. So what grounds of assurance does the struggling Christian have if they believe that this is directed at the almost Christian? They don't have any assurance. They're just stuck wondering if they've committed apostasy. This is key. The text is not intended to cause a Christian to ask, have I fallen away? Let me say that again. The text is not intended to cause the Christian to ask, have I fallen away? The text is intended to get Christians to make sure they never fall away. There's a world of difference between those two approaches to the text. 
It's not intended to get you to start wondering, have I fallen away from Christ? It is get you to take action to make sure you never fall away from Christ. That's how the passage is intended to function in the life of the believer. The great irony about this fourth set of interpreters is that the proponents of this interpretation really are concerned about the doctrine of eternal security. They do not want to disrupt the doctrine of eternal security for the life of the believer. And I believe that's right. In order for us to have assurance, we need to know that genuine salvation cannot be lost. But the great irony is that, is that by suggesting that the author is talking to another group of believers, or a number, another group of uh, people, na- uh, namely the almost believer, the almost Christian, and that believers need to ask themselves whether their faith is real or not, or if I've fallen away, have I, that actually you're undermining the Christian's assurance. Why? Because the warning isn't meant to cause the Christian to wonder whether they've fallen away. It's meant to get them to make sure that they never do. So how do we put these truths together? How do we put these three truths together? How do we put the truth together that salvation is eternally secure? That the warning in Hebrews 6 is directed at believers. And third, that the warning is an admonition not to fall away from Christ and go to hell after you've been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift. How do you put all those together? Well, we've already proposed how we solve this. We asked the question, now we're in the point, how should Christians apply Hebrews 6? In your outline, what is the function of the warnings in Hebrews, in particular in chapter 6? How are they to function in the life of the believer? The answer, I believe, that makes the most contextual, theological, and pastoral sense is to see these warnings as the means by which God keeps his people believing. God has given his people eternal life. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, and he has caused you to be born again, your salvation is secure. It's eternal. How long does eternal life last? Well, eternally. right? And once you have it, it's yours. The way to that salvation is by recognizing that you are a sinner and that you need a savior, a substitute, and that's Christ Jesus who bears the wrath of God in your place, who fulfills all righteousness in your place who has provided everything that you need to be right with God by faith alone and you embrace Him, God grants you a secure salvation. By its very nature, salvation is secure. But the world is full of temptation. It's full of sin. It's full of stumbling blocks. It's full of distractions. We still have indwelling sin. We still have hearts that get easily carried away by other desires. We become bored with spiritual truths. Do you become bored with spiritual truths? We become bored with spiritual truths. Everything in this world is working against our faith. Everything. You step out the door today, and you step off this campus, it's just going to be an onslaught of temptations seeking to undermine your faith and my faith. So, in order for God to keep us believing in the midst of all of that, he has to now and again give us sharp, serious, real warnings of what will happen if we choose to turn our backs on Jesus Christ. That's how these warnings are intended to function. Notice that the warning is framed as a conditional 
warning. It's conditional. If the condition is met, then the consequence will follow. For it is impossible in the case of those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, there's the condition, who have then fallen away, you meet the condition, okay? Here, you've, you've tasted, you meet, you've tasted the heavenly gift, you fall away, there's the condition, you've met the condition, here's the consequence. It's impossible to restore you again to repentance. It's, 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 a, it's a locked in conditional statement. There's no two ways around it. It will be impossible for you to be renewed again to repentance if you, after being enlightened, fall away from Jesus and turn your back on Jesus and reject Jesus, saying, nope, not anymore, not for me. But notice notice also, he doesn't say that this has happened to anyone in the congregation. He He doesn't say that. It's just a conditional warning. If the condition is met, the consequence will follow. He doesn't hint that this has happened to anybody yet. He's just issuing a conditional warning. And it's this. If you fall away from Christ after being in line, it will be impossible for you to come back to Christ. Game over. You're finished. That's the conditional warning. Now, this is a tough word. But this is how God will get you to heaven, believer. I believe this with all my heart. This is how God will get you to heaven, is by issuing this warning. It doesn't matter who you are or how long you have been a Christian. I want you to listen to this warning and apply it to your heart and life. Listen in. This is how God is going to get you to heaven. If you've been enlightened to see the beauty of Christ and the glory of the gospel, of forgiveness of sins, and an eternity with your Creator, who plans to lavish out every spiritual blessing you can imagine, pleasures forevermore. If you've tasted of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if you've tasted of that heavenly gift, if you've enjoyed the inner delights of the Word of God, and if you've felt in your soul the power of the age to come working on your soul, and that after all of that, you walk away from Jesus, you're done. You are finished. You can't come back, even if you want to. You will be like Esau, who we meet in chapter 12, who wanted to repent but couldn't. He was done. It was game over. He wanted to repent, but he was unable to repent. If you have tasted of these good things and then you say, I want nothing to do with Christ, you can never come back. The next thing that you are waiting for is judgment and that's it. That's what the passage teaches. Now, if that landed the right way, there may be a few responses. This may be a response. One of the responses may be, you are horrified that that could ever happen to you. And you are determined by God's grace to never let that happen to you. And I would say, amen. It landed how it should have. There may be some of you who are terrified because you are starting to feel dullness. And you're afraid that this could happen to you. And now you're wondering, what should I do? 
And the answer is, you need to start getting busy about repentance in your life and cultivating a passion for God. But here's a key word to the person who's struggling right now, and I wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. He doesn't say that dullness is apostasy. All right? You're feeling the dullness? You haven't fallen away yet. Dullness is not apostasy, but it can lead to it. So you need to get busy about repentance and cultivating that passion again and getting back right with walking with the Lord. Repentance is not, I'm sorry, dullness is not apostasy, but it can lead to it. If you remain in a condition of spiritual regression, you put yourself in real danger of eventually falling away from Christ. That's, that's the argument of this passage. That's why you need to deal with the spiritual regression. Not because the regression itself is apostasy, but because it can lead there. Some of you might be resisting this morning. This, this morning. You might be thinking, well, Derek, I'm assured of my salvation. I know salvation can't be lost. And I would say, amen and amen. Right? I'm glad you have assurance. I hope most of you have assurance of your salvation. I hope all of you do, right? But you're resisting it because you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me, Derek, because I'm assured of my salvation. I'm walking in the confidence and joy of the Holy Spirit, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not harboring sin, and I'm, I'm enjoying Christ, and I'm, this, life is good, man. And so this, this doesn't apply to me. So you're kind of resisting it. But your resistance demonstrates that you don't fully understand yet the way God keeps you in the faith. How does he keep you in the faith? Well, one of the ways is by giving you a serious warning of what happens if you turn away from Christ. In order to keep you on the narrow path of repentant faith that leads all the way to heaven, God must deliver sharp warnings to his children now and again. And here we are with one of those warnings. So even if you are assured today, absorb this warning. It's for your good. Well, what happens when you spurn spiritual blessing? He tells us, what's the big deal? Why well, get all worked up about this? Verse 6, you've fallen away. What happens? It becomes impossible to restore you again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. After experiencing the goodness of Christ, tasting of all the good things that God has delivered to us in the gospel, enjoying it, even bringing the name of Jesus on your lips and even telling others about him and even singing about him, after all that, to say, nope, not for me. What do you expect God to do? What do you expect? This is the greatest kind of treachery. You've been exposed to the greatest gift and the greatest person in the universe, and you're like, nah, what do you expect God to do? Right? That's, that's, the, that's the point. The, the point is, you're, you're holding up Christ to contempt. What, what do you expect God to, to do? You have spurned his son. And as we'll see in chapter 10, you've, you've outraged the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace, the spirit of kindness. You said, no, not for me. The author drives us home with an agricultural illustration. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain and often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed and its end is to be burned. So the picture here is, and we can imagine it pretty easily right now, uh, a a piece of land that's received just a lot of life-giving rain, right? 
And what's supposed to happen? Well, that field is supposed to take that life-giving rain and produce a healthy, good crop. And when it does, you're like, that's working the way it's supposed to. And it receives here, it says, a blessing from God. And it provides for the, the manager of this piece of land. And you cultivate it, and you, you take in the fruit and the, the crop, and it's, it's a good situation. But if the rain falls and falls and falls, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting for a good crop, and all that you get are thorns and thistles, looking out across your field, your piece of land, what are you going to do? You're going to hack that all up and throw it into the furnace. That's the illustration here. That field is worthless and eventually going to be burned up by the owner if it doesn't start to produce healthy crops. And here's the point. If you've taken in the good word of God and enjoyed the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and felt the powers of the age to come, and those spiritual experiences are hardening your heart and producing more unbelief and more dullness in your life, then you are on the path to apostasy and eternal curse from God. You can't keep on drinking in the rain and drinking in the rain and drinking in the rain and then produce thorns and thistles and expect there to be a good end. We need to take in the truth of God and believe it and absorb it into our hearts and obey it. It doesn't matter how long you've professed Christ or what your Christian lineage is or what kind of experiences that you've had. This is an incontrovertible truth. If the word of God goes in your soul and produces life and fruit, you receive a blessing from God. If it goes into your soul and produces thorns and thistles, you receive a curse from God. Well, anybody still with me yet? We're, we're, uh, it's, it's hard. These are hard words. But, but here's how the author intends us to use them. Let's look at verse 9 now. What we call the breath of relief verse. You look in your uh, outlines, encouragement and admonishment for the sake of your assurance. Everything I just told you from this passage is intended for your assurance of salvation. It's intended to create in your life assurance. Look at what he says. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Well, why do you think he said that? Because he knows there are people in that congregation who are absolutely terrified that this could happen to them. And they're just bewildered. They're just, they're just stunned. What, are they, what do we do? And he is confident. He reassures them that he's confident they're going to heed his warnings. Right? We are, we are assured of better things for you. He is, he's confident they're going to heed the warnings. He even comforts them that, about how God is going to Reward them for their faithful service. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to look, overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he even reassures them how God is going to reward them in the future of their, their good service and faithful service to him. Again, the author has not said that anyone in the congregation has committed apostasy. He hasn't said that, has he? He's confident that they're going to heed the warnings. But he does go back to his original concern. Look at it, verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may be, not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The word for sluggish here is the same word that he used for dullness in chapter 5, verse 11. 
when he rebuked them for being dull of hearing. His desire, see, I just, I just wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. His desire is that everyone in the congregation take what he has just said and renew their spiritual diligence and application to their spiritual life. The goal of the rebuke in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, and the goal of the soul-shattering warning in Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, is not to send you off in a spiritual tailspin. <laughs> Would have saved me so much trouble had I known this 20 years ago. It's not intended to send you off in some spiritual tailspin. That's clearly not what he's getting after, is it? The rebuke and the warning are meant to do the exact opposite, brothers, sisters. It's meant to do the exact opposite. Not to send you off wondering, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? But to get you to assurance. To kick you in the tail so that you might take your spiritual life seriously and stop messing around. So you might have that full assurance of hope until the end. That's the goal of the warning. Isn't that amazing? The way to get a number of us there, though, is to give us a serious, sharp warning of what will happen if we be, get enlightened, if we were enlightened and then fall away from Christ. That's how he's going to get us to assurance. The warning is meant to produce in you a full assurance of hope so that you will go to heaven with confidence of your final def- destination. That's what it's meant to produce. Oh, this would have saved me a lot of trouble had I known this. Had I known the intention of this passage. And that's why I'm so eager for you to know it and to apply it. The warning is deadly serious. But the seriousness is not meant to send you off in some spiritual tailspin. It's meant to cultivate in your life true assurance of salvation. So you will have that full assurance. In, 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 like he says, the imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We can't allow ourselves to be content with spiritual dullness. We, we, can't, we, mean, we need to receive the rebuke of 5.11. Assurance is rooted in the finished work of Christ. That is true. Assurance is rooted in God's promises. And promises we'll actually learn about in verses 13 through 20. But assurance also requires diligence. Do you know that? Assurance of salvation, that, that subjective sense that I am a believer, that I'm a Christian, that I'm saved, that I'm going to heaven. It's rooted in the objective work of Christ and the objective promises of God. But it also requires diligence. It requires diligence to apply the truth, to obey what we know, to be active in repentance and confession of sin to God and to others, to do whatever we can to not make sinful provision for the flesh, to be radical about putting sin to death in our lives, to make sure that we are believing the word of God when it's preached and when we're reading it and when it's taught, and to remain diligent in serving the Lord. So just because you're without assurance doesn't mean you're, you're if you're without assurance, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian. But if you desire assurance, you must apply diligence while at the same time believing in all that God has done on your behalf. How do we maintain our assurance? Well, one of the ways, as we saw a few weeks ago, and we'll continue to see, one of the ways is by planting ourselves firmly in the local church so that we can hear the exhortations and admonishments and the rebukes of our brothers and sisters so that we will be warned away from the deceitfulness of sin. 
So easy to be deceived. I need someone else in my ear telling me, Derek, you're, you're not seeing it right. You're going down the wrong path. You're, sin is deceitful. You're, you're, you're rephrasing it. You're recategorizing it. It's, it's sinful. I need that. And you need that. And that's one of the ways that we keep ourselves in a place where we can have assurance. But here, actually, he's going to go on to say there are other things you can do, too. Verse 12. So that, well, starting in verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. There's, there's the goal of the warning. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, who is he talking about? Who, who are we to imitate? Well, he'll, he'll mention Abraham in the next passage, but then he'll mention a whole load of characters in Hebrews chapter 11, all of whom went through trials and struggles but remained faithful to the Lord, who didn't turn their back on God when they had every chance to. Sinners, the whole lot of them, right? They were all sinners. Not one of them was perfect. In fact, some of them sinned a whole lot. You read the stories of some of these guys. I just read Samson the other day in my daily Bible reading. I was like, good night, this guy was a scoundrel. Are you kidding me? But he, he remained faithful to the Lord till the end. And he, he proved his faith at the very end with how he took down the Philistines. So we need to root ourselves in these examples of, of those who have, who have persevered in their faith all the way to the very end who kept their eyes on the unseen promises and were able to embrace trials and suffering but not turn their back on the living God. We need to root ourselves in these examples. But it's not just the biblical examples because the author will go on to tell us in chapter 13, verse 7, that we are to remember our leaders, those who spoke the word of God to us, and to remember the out, outcome of their faith and, in, and imitate them, Right? So it's both these biblical examples, but then it's the examples of people who have gone before us, who have navigated the Christian life, who have sought the Lord faithfully their whole life long, and who died in the Lord, having suffered, having walked faithfully with the Lord Jesus their whole life. And those are the people that we need to imitate. We don't want to look to the people that have fallen away from the faith. We want to look to those who have made it all the way. The author's aim in this passage, so let's close with this, make sure that we are all clear. The author's aim in this passage and in this warning is to make sure that all of his listeners apply diligence to their spiritual life so that they will go to heaven with full assurance of faith. That's why he has to give them such a stern rebuke and such a stark warning It was for their good, and it is for your good as well. I pray that every one of us will take that warning of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and take it into our souls, and to go to the throne of grace and say, God, by your grace, I will never fall away from the Lord Jesus. Will you help me? Will you help me put this sin to death? Will you help me with my spiritual dullness? Will you help me regain that zeal that I once had? Will you help me be faithful? And guess what? Is he going to answer that prayer? You bet he will answer that prayer. Determined by God's help to never fall away from Christ. Make it your aim to deal with any issue in your life that's robbing you of assurance or that's defiling your conscience. 
Repent of spiritual dullness and apathy. We need to confess our sins to not only to God, but trusted brothers and sisters who will help us, help us expose our sin, and determined by God's grace to make progress in your spiritual life. And here we'll end with this verse. To show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of the hardest words in the Bible, a sharp and severe warning of what will happen to those who fall away after they've tasted of the heavenly gift. God, I pray that this word would land the right way upon every soul that is here today. If someone is not a believer and they've heard the gospel for the first time, I pray that they'd come to Christ. But for the believers in our midst, I pray that you would use this passage to provoke them to greater repentance, obedience, and assurance. Pray that this passage would have its fruit in the life of each Christian here. That each person would move forward in their Christian life so that they might have full assurance of hope until the end. We ask for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.